Hello, and welcome to the Elam Thriving Podcast. We're here to connect you with information and resources that promote thriving. Our goal is to see you and the individuals with disabilities that you support thriving together in community. In this episode, I sit down with Alex Bernstein, a teacher and administrator in the Chicago suburbs. Welcome back to Elam Thriving. I'm your host, Nick Milano, and I'm joined today with Alex Bernstein. Um, Alex, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, first of all, it's a, a pleasure to be here, Nick. Uh, uh, Nick and I worked together, uh, I don't know, a dozen years ago or something like that and when I was uh, uh, pretty new to working in special education. But uh, my background is um, uh, I sort of got into um, special education by way of psychiatric hospitals where I, where I worked for a number of years as sort of the, uh, the resident teacher in the mid 2000s. And, um, and from there, I found my way into special education in a, in a pretty large Northwest suburban Chicago school district and um, in an alternative school uh, where we worked together, you know, it was pretty stressful. Uh, it was a great job. I really enjoyed it. But after six years there, I moved um, within the same district to um, a larger uh, regular high school. Um, and I've been, been there, I think, oh, six or seven years. Um, and I'm the English as a uh, second language department chair. Um, and I've been in that role again, I, uh, six or seven years. Yeah, a lot of great memories. And we both learned a ton through that process. So thank you for joining me today. I did want to bring you on to discuss EL. So let's just start with the definition. How do you define EL? Well, you know, so the, the, the it's much like special education. So there are many different acronyms and abbreviations. Um, and our, uh, in our school district, you know, the department is still called ESL, which is somewhat antiquated term um, at this point, a little bit archaic, which means English is a second language. Um, and uh, now the preferred abbreviation is EL for English learner or ELL, English language learner. Um, and, you know, uh, they've, they've made the change because for many students who were acquiring English, it wasn't their second language. Um, and then even crazier is that at times uh, people who are in EL programs would identify and continue to identify English as their first language. So, um, yeah, I guess the um, in in the name of getting less specific, now they just call it um, EL or ELL English language learners or English learner. It's one of those terms that is constantly evolving, and I know so many terms like that within the realm of special ed that just we don't use anymore. We use updated acronyms and yeah, it's just one of those things that just keeps changing. So glad to have you on to discuss the, the most current and up-to-date stuff. So what does EL or ESL or ELL look like in the classroom? Well, um, you know, I can only speak from my uh, personal experience, but um, in in the school that I'm in, uh, we use a um, 
you know, in English is a, uh, I guess I would call it an English as a second language model or a, um, or, you know, English language learner, which means that the students are educated completely within English. Um, and the students take ESL at our school classes instead of, um, of well, I, mean, I guess, regular English classes. And depending on their level um, of proficiency and how new they are to the country and all the other variables, they take, take either two or three English classes in their coursework. Um, and the, um, so, you know, it's just plugged into their schedule. And then in addition to that, they have what's called a resource, which is a study hall specifically for language learners. And then um, uh, in their content area classes, and that's by and large English, math, um, well, not English, but math, science, and social studies, they'll be, uh, they're taught by, you know, someone in the math department, but by and large, that person has a certification in um, ESL or an endorsement in addition to their, you know, their science teaching or their math teaching. And those classes are what's called sheltered. Sheltered means that they have a, um, a smaller number of students. I think the law is that they have to have um, it's either 10 or 15% less than a regular uh, education classroom. Um, and of course, by and large, there are students who are um, in the EL program, though they're not always, but by and large, yes. Um, and that's just one model of, of English as a second language, but there, there are many, many, many different ways that different schools um, educate these students. Yeah, it sounds a lot like my experience with special education, where you have different levels and like ladders of support, where some students go to all their classes and receive very little support outside of a resource. So how does that generally work for your students? Do they respond well to that? Are there things that you'd like to tweak with that? I'm just, I guess I'm leading to the question, what's a goal for your department? You know, one thing that would be great is is that it's something, a, a method of instructing students that sort of um, outside of, uh, or an alternative to English as a second language. Um, and this by law is defined as when you have 20 or more students of a given language group. So like say you have, you know, uh, 20 speakers of Spanish in your school. At that point you are um, obliged by state law to provide bilingual education. And so in that, in that um, uh, sense, in that setting, students are supposed to receive instruction um, in language and culture of the, of what's called the L1, of the, of the first language. Um, and, you know, you could find yourself into a science class that's, that's instructed in Spanish or Urdu or, or, or Hindi or, or, um, um, or whatever language that, you know, you have a large number of students from that, um, from that part of the world. Um, and that's a really, really cool model. And we sort of try and model or um, imitate it as best we can by, uh, you know, the, one of the great strengths of, of um, students in our program is by and large, they are bilingual, especially when they're recent immigrants. So one of the ways that you kind of mimic that is you put them in, uh, we have a pretty rich uh, Spanish for native speakers program in our school. So we really um, 
make an effort to identify and place these students in uh, in in these classes early on. And you know, it would be ideal if we had stronger native speaker if we had native speaker um, classes on offer for other languages, but we only have them for Spanish. And then you know, you can have a student who might be in a level one English class. You know, that means they might speak an area word of of English. Um, but they could be an AP Spanish at the same time. And the way that this sort of, um, you know, rather than have them sort of tracked remedial, which can unfortunately happen quite easily to language learners and as with special education students. Um, but you can have them in this experience where they have a chance to, you know, be around students um, who by and large um, are of their own culture and uh, where they're one of the most gifted or strongest in that content area of anybody in the whole school. There's so much to that. And I'm gonna break that response down into multiple questions. So just first, I just very curious. I know that the area you're in, the school that you're working at is linguistically diverse. Do you have those populations of 20 kids where you have to provide English in, or uh, instruction in their native language? Um, we're very diverse and um, we do have more than 20 students in our, um, um, our Latino students who, who are Spanish speaking Latin, Latinx. Um, and then I think our, our second group, um, which we do not have over 20, are um, students who speak Hindi and uh, followed by Urdu speakers. And then just we have students from all over the world, you know, from, um, you know, a handful of students from Nigeria and, and Vietnam. Um, but uh, we've had a, it's, it's, it's just very interesting how things change. This is not your question, but like, for example, we're just very impacted by um, what the, the global um, political climate is. Uh, for example, um, we've had a ton of students uh, from Venezuela uh, as of late, you know, we've never had more students from uh, Venezuela than Mexico until this past year. And that's sort of a testament to just sort of uh, the horrible economic uh, collapse of, of the country and that a lot of our students' families are experiencing. Um, and um, yeah, and we're expecting to get a ton of students over the summer, because you may have heard on the news that, um, uh, I mean, I don't think it's speaking out of turn to call it a crisis what's happening at the southern border and all the the people who um, are um, are desperate to enter this country um, whether they be unaccompanied minors or not and um, um, you know the feeling whether whether true or not that the president administration is more receptive to immigrants than the previous you know, so all these things are, are going to change our population, our numbers. So, um, you know, there's a lot of flux in terms of um, um, uh, in terms of the population we have in the language groups we have at any given year. Wow, that is fascinating to hear that politics is so interconnected with the education system, as it normally should be, I would think, because we want schools to be responsive to the needs of the community and the community is affected by the politics of the world. So that's that's amazing. A follow-up question. So you were getting an influx of students from Venezuela who are native Spanish speakers. And you mentioned this class, Spanish for native speakers. 
for someone who doesn't speak Spanish, I know you are bilingual. How does that class, Spanish for native speakers, differ from a regular Spanish class that these students have to take? Well, um, the the students who are selected to participate in the class are uh, have grown up speaking Spanish. So, I mean, I guess that's what, by definition, will classify them as, as native speakers. So they need not be immigrants. Um, but by and large, their their parents are immigrants and that, um, you know, they spoke Spanish in, in the home. And, um, you know, uh, for it's, it's sort of a far stretch though from being uh, bilingual, you know, speaking a second language and becoming um, biliterate. Um, and uh, so the Spanish for native speakers um, takes those sort of oral skills. And then, you know, I mean, if you, for example, I, I believe you speak a smattering of Italian. Um, so uh, if you, you know, if you grow up speaking and hearing, uh, you know, spoken Italian, you might speak it well, but you know, you might uh, not feel comfortable reading and writing in it. And, um, uh, you know, just the, the opportunities that it provides for students who are in that, that class farther down the line when they become biliterate and to gain college credit are, are really uh, remarkable. That's awesome that that service is provided. Um, I had a little bit of experience with that when I was in administration that we offered that class at our school. So I just think it's one of those things that non-Spanish speakers don't really understand, but it is a super big support to students who need just more functional language usage in their classes. So yeah. um, I would just say, I'd like to add that the the, you know, the misconception is something that at various times I've had to overcome because, um, you know, the um, people's immediate reaction is like, why would you put a student from Venezuela in uh, a Spanish class, right? Like, you know, shouldn't they be working on, on developing English or whatever? But actually, you know, there's a lot of research that, that shows that, um, you know, uh, the, the work that you do explore, exploring grammatical structures, reading, writing in the in the L1, in the first language supports the development in, in English too. And you know, just because our students come in speaking uh, fluent Spanish doesn't mean they know how to write an essay in Spanish, for example. So um, it's very important for them. Sometimes they can develop those skills in Spanish before that material would be presented to them in, in English rather than waiting till their junior or senior year where they might might be the first time they would be um, have the English level where they could explore those types of structures. That's a great thing to bring up. I'm so glad that you did mention that because that's a question I didn't even think of. But yeah, bridging those skills is a way to support these students without doing anything extra. So great point. And we both have experience in administration and working with schedules and understanding how students go throughout their day. So you mentioned tracking, unfortunately, as a result earlier. So I've seen how that works where you, unfortunately, you take one class your freshman year and it sort of sets the tone for the rest of your high school career and limits a lot of options just because of when classes are offered and what your other opportunities are throughout the day. Does you have to take certain classes and prerequisites? So I'm just curious, how do you prevent stigmas from developing with these students? Well, there's 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 sort of two ways to to address it, um, and and I don't know if this is in terms of stigmas, but in terms of how teachers' perceptions of of students um, might affect 
um, how they identify their, you know, where they are in terms of their skill level or, or lack thereof. Um, and so the first one is that you work with the, the teachers to, to educate them so that they can begin to um, understand um, that, you know, no, this is, it's, you know, by and large, these students don't necessarily have skill deficits, particularly um, this is hard, a hard sell, particularly in subjects like math, where if you travel to Poland, and we have a Polish teacher in our department, so um, a teacher from Poland, um, math is taught in a completely different way. Um, so kids who do very, very well come over uh, and they take the math placement tests and they tank because like they didn't learn the, our method of long division or, or this or that. And they're and they're tracked really low by and large. So um, you have to communicate with the, the teachers to dig a little deeper and understand what the, the two, true ability and understanding of the student is. Um, and then the second thing is uh, there's a lot of heavy lifting to be done to educate the families about the U.S. education system, because by and large, they don't understand the, um, you know, the, and it, the, they don't even know what they don't know uh, in terms of uh, in terms of, you know, that there's five different numbers that math classes end in and in the students freshman year and that they if they don't get you know, vertically aligned by the time they're sophomore, they're pretty much screwed, uh, you know. So you have to you have to tell the parent, like, look, you really want um, to work with your child to communicate with the teacher to let them know that, um, um, you know, you want, you know, you have to uh, become, as you know, in the U.S. education system, you really have to self-advocate significantly. And, and this is a really, really hard skill for our, our parents and uh, our, our, our students because uh, often culturally, um, they have a lot of uh, implicit trust in the system and in authority figures. And it's not something that is culturally appropriate um, at times to question the decisions of educators and administrators. So, um, um, so um, part of the work is done educating the parents on the importance of, uh, of getting into certain classes, how to do that, how to work within the system, how to advocate for themselves, um, and how to uh, prepare for the, the next step, which is you know post-secondary, um, which is a whole other story in, in itself, yeah. That is very important information to know. So how can a teacher better prepare themselves to engage to meet the cultural and linguistic needs of their students? Um, well, you know, one thing that's very important is that, um, that I think might be the thing I'm most proud of is we are very um, linguistically uh, and racially diverse staff. And so, you know, we have, uh, um, you know, uh, staff members from um, Korea, Poland, Nigeria, India. Um, uh, well, we have a, an, an Urdu speaker who also speaks some Arabic. Um, so, you know, at, at the end of the day, 
you know, you talk about the administrator lens to this, um, and, you know, you talk about um, what you need to do to meet the needs of your students, you really need to reflect the cultural and linguistic diversity of your students in your hiring process. Um, and, you know, I saw that you had questions on your list like, you know, well, if, if you don't speak a lick of Spanish and, and you're and you're in a classroom with 30 people who don't speak any English, like, what do you do? Well, I mean, I would say, you know, uh, take a Spanish class uh, and um, encourage the administrator to hire people to put them in front of the students who are able to connect not just with those students, but also with their uh, families. It's a really critical factor in, in bridging those parents to, to school. Absolutely. Hiring is one of those things that is very much an afterthought when designing these programs, but you're right. It has to be the center point because who we're putting in front of the students is going to be that relationship builder and they're going to be on the front lines every day. So I could see how good people in the classroom that understand the culture can connect with the students are going to have such a greater impact. Um, continuing with that, let's say we have teachers who don't, what would your advice for them be? other than take a class is there something they could google is there a you know is there like a youtube series they could watch is there some other support that they can take to learn about culture yeah well i think there there's a ton there's a ton um and um like you said i in the same way that you connect with other students um first of all learn rule one is learn the appropriate way to say their name if and and students from asia um often use Americanized uh, names just for the sake of the teachers. They often don't like them and don't connect with them. So if you find out their real names and see if they're comfortable um, and then ex explore words and, and phrases in their, um, in their language and culture, um, ask them uh, about it. Um, if you do speak another language, like, you know, like if I'm, uh, you know, I have a Mandarin speaker now in my class, and if um, you know some of the other kids are are are, um, are Latinx students who are Spanish speakers, so you know if we explore how um, something is said in Spanish, I also ask her how it's said in um, in Mandarin. Um, and of course, you know if you're just looking to communicate, um, there is uh, you know Google Translate it has, is is pretty cool. Um, and it has, there's an app now that can even uh, translate in real time so that the students, as you speak in English, they can have the text to, it can be text to text or to speech in their language. But I, I do think it's important, um, unless you're teaching English, you know, and I remember from uh, special education that we worked a lot with universal design and learning, which is sort of about, identifying what the barrier to understanding is and and overcoming it so um you know i i would encourage any educator who has um, um students who are um who are language learners in front of them if it's not an english class you know they're going to learn enough english through the natural course of events it doesn't have to be 
It's not the school of hard knocks to like learn English to access the curriculum. Um, so um, the language barrier is something that you as the, as the teacher have to overcome. And, um, you know, we talked about um, uh, some methods, but in terms of in terms of your curriculum, I mean, I think a lot of the steps would probably be very, be very similar to special education that, you know, you would um, rely other, heavily on other modes of expression and pictures and, and, um, and um, would, um, yeah, just look to overcome that language barrier rather than just kind of plow through, you know, use less um, text rich or text or, or use text with less complexity um and depending on your subject if you're a social studies teacher um, i really encourage social studies teachers um, since there's so much evidence now on source documents it's very 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 difficult for language learners so consider even uh, um, using um, primary source documents side by sides with, you know, plain English translations, you know, similar to like some English teachers would do Shakespeare in plain English. But, um, you know, when you're looking at old English or, you know, the founding fathers language, you know, you're asking the students to learn yet a third language in order to access those texts. And that is a bridge too far. Those are just a couple of things, you know, the, the issue of, of how to use curriculum um, and how to communicate with students who don't speak English. You know, we could we could talk for weeks. Oh, absolutely. And I'm really just soaking a lot in right now because there's just so many strategies because so many good people have done great things. It does lead me to the we had a discussion earlier in the week about the cultural connection that you made um, with the Polish valet. Could you uh, just give a recap of that story and just kind of how it points us to the cultural differences and how we can share an enjoyment of differences among us? Yes. Uh, uh, I remember uh, Matt Smooth very well. He's a nice guy. We worked out in, in Wicker Park. We worked as valets. I found myself as a, you know, um, a recipient of a uh, hundred and twenty thousand uh, dollar college education and unable to find any work other than as a valet to my parents great embarrassment but you know a lot of great guys were, were working there recent polish immigrants and this is in in um in in wicker park and bucktown in the in the late 90s but anyway so uh you know the guys one of those guys uh, matt would just rant about uh how everything in the u.s was a sandwich it's like why do americans make everything a sandwich and it's true the, 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 and we you, love it and you ask me is a hot dog a sandwich and i guess the answer is yes yeah, but I just love how that just shows us how different people can look at the same information or the same data and just have a completely different approach. So teachers need to be mindful of that when you're teaching a student from another place that just because you might use this picture or this example, it could mean something completely different where they might not have any concept of what on earth is this or how does this operate? So it just was a funny story, but really helps me get oh, there's a lot of different ways to look at the same information in the world. And speaking of which, food is, is one of the most 
excellent ways to connect with people of, uh, of another culture. Have them talk about their food, uh, go, to, go to restaurants that serve that type of cuisine, report back on, uh, on what you ate. And then and post COVID, if you, if you work this the right way, you might just get some amazing pierogies cooked by one of your students' moms. So, uh, you know, uh, if you're curious enough, you could be handsomely rewarded. I believe it completely. I have uh, witnessed it myself. My brother, uh, he used to work in Japan as an English teacher in Japan. And one of his students who was learning English, this family owned an amazing sushi restaurant. And he just would eat all this crazy sushi all the time and just had the greatest experience. So I believe food is that great cultural connection piece that even you don't need to speak it. You can just eat it and enjoy it. And that's a really awesome point. <laughs> but, you know, there's always a but. Um, um, for example, you, you still have to be sensitive of cultural differences. For example, but, uh, um, many of our students from, uh, um, you know, from India by and large are vegetarians. So if you're having like a class, a potluck or something like that, you know, be aware of what the dietary restrictions are. Um, um, you know, many of the, of the, the Muslim students will only eat food that's halal. So, you know, you have to, you have to understand, I, I usually, call for vegetarian potlucks uh, only to avoid some of that, uh, um, you know, the cultural differences or to be mindful of them. Thanks for listening to the Elam Thriving Podcast. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to us if you left some feedback. You can learn more about us at our website, elamcs.org. Thanks again for listening.